Hi, you're about to hear the pilot episode of Latino Labs podcast, a podcast on science, technology, and society done by Latino scientists. Hope you enjoy. Don't forget to check us out at Twitter or Facebook. Thank you. Hundreds of scientists in 17 countries spent $3 billion and now we blew up the spacecraft. So why would you destroy it? And what was it for? And how was it to work with it? That's what we're going to talk about today. This is Latino Lab. My name is Nico. I'm Andrea, and we're talking about the Cassini-Huygens mission, which just burned up in Saturn's atmosphere September 15th. And we're very excited because we got to talk to two scientists that were involved with the mission. But before we get into what they had to say, let's just talk a little bit about Saturn. So one of Saturn's most notable features are, of course, the rings. Yeah, and I think that's because you can just see them with a good telescope. They're super, super thin. And actually, if you wanted to model the rings on um, a smaller scale than Saturn, uh, if you took a cell phone as the thickness of the rings and you wanted to model the diameter, you could actually cover the entire state of Colorado in a cell phone thick layer representing the rings because it's 500 kilometers across and one centimeter thick. And that's the same ratio as the rings, which are about 30 meters thick and um, 160,000 kilometers across in diameter. Yeah, that's just insane. And only 30 meters thick in space. It's just a crazy thing to imagine. But the rings are not only cool, but they're also very interesting. And they allow us to understand how planets form. Because at some point, the solar system looked like a disk of matter orbiting the sun, and then matter started to aggregate because of gravity to form planets. And therefore, studying the dynamics and the composition of Saturn rings allows us to study how we came to be. And the moons themselves can give us extra information as well, because it turns out that on moons like Titan and Enceladus, they've discovered that there is stable liquid. And that's really surprising because it's really far away from the sun, and yet you can have lakes of methane and ethane on Titan, and on top of maybe being a good place to possibly have life start with some liquid, the ethane and methane cycles on Titan can give us some information on the water cycle here, and especially because people think that maybe before life, our atmosphere might have looked a lot like that of Titan. So those are just a few of the many things that the Cassini-Huygens mission set out to investigate really motivated by the Voyager flyby of Saturn back in the 80s. But to know more about the mission, we asked the scientist that has been working on the Cassini mission for more than 20 years. So my name is Amanda Hendricks, and I'm a planetary scientist with Planetary Science Institute. This mission has been going on for so long. As you said, it's, you know, the concept started in the 80s. It was launched in 1997, and now it's ending 30 years later. So, But in that whole time, there's... Um, been hundreds and hundreds of scientists involved and some have stayed on and been involved the whole time some people have come lots of people have come on board um you know since launch you know there's lots of younger scientists who have come on board and gotten their phds that's quite interesting because my project is considered pretty large and we have three phd students working on it and i can't imagine having hundreds of people working on the same data set but we actually went to look for one, uh, and he just graduated. He just defended in May, and he just started a new job. Let's hear from him. 
My name is Morgan Renberg, and I'm currently the Director of Scientific Presentation at the Fort Worth Museum of Science and History. I worked on Cassini for uh, five years as a graduate student researcher, and I also worked on it for a couple of years as an undergraduate. So the two of them have had really different experiences since he was a grad student throughout this process for five years, had a limited view of the data that came in, and also probably wasn't involved in the same sorts of decisions that she would have been taking part in. That's why I was very excited to get them both to talk to us and to try to give us a hint on what working on this project was. A normal day for me would look like basically the same thing you could imagine a normal day for a computer programmer or an accountant to look like. I sat down at my computer, I opened up some code, I did some programming, and then I went and talked about them with people. And we thought, what can we do better? And then come back in the next day and try to make a little improvement here or a little improvement there. It's not very different. Even if I worked in a lab, at least 60 or 70% of the time, I was coding, doing data analysis, reading paper, trying to have discussions. And even if you're not coding, you are going back and redoing experiments, not necessarily because they were wrong the first time, just because there's something else and you have to, you can do it better or you can tweak it to get a different piece of information out. Yeah, and the meetings are also something that everyone goes through. You know, you go through your week and you do your experiment and you work on your project and you read and you analyze and whatever. And then you meet with your advisor and then you realize where you've gone off track or where you need to readjust. And then you go back and you do it again. And, and this is, uh, speaking of meetings, so... As we said, Amanda is more of a senior scientist and her experience of her daily life is much different. We have lots of meetings throughout Cassini. It's sort of a running joke how many telecons we have. That is like, I mean, that is still like really funny. I've heard that clip like five times. That's and it's just so thing. true. We go to some meetings, but we really know that senior people go to more meetings than we do. And those in-person meetings are just invaluable. And I think, you know, for um, even for data analysis, you know, and some of my most memorable times on Cassini have been sitting in a room all together, you know, seeing these images come in of a moon. You know, we've just done the flyby. The data are coming down and we're seeing the images all together for the first time. It's really um, memorable for one thing, but it's also, you know, that's where the ideas start flowing. People start saying, wow, look at that crater. It looks really fresh or that crater looks really soft like it's been eroded. Look at those fractures. Huh, I wonder what's going on there. And people start tossing ideas around and, you know, it's an exciting thing to experience. But it's also really when a lot of that initial science happens. When I was running experiments, you know, we would prepare for weeks and then we would have like three weeks to do the experiment. But then if something goes wrong during the experiment, I can just shut down and then fix it and then restart a couple of days later. That's not really an option for them. Yeah, no, once, once it's gone to space. Then it's gone. <laughs> it's gone. And it's been gone for 20 years. So they had to prepare for, for everything they could prepare and also for the things they could not prepare. So that is tricky. Um, because we had the four years of the prime mission planned out. We had all of the science activities, all of the flybys planned out. And, um, and so if you want to change something and you want to say, oh, no, we want to make the spacecraft go over here instead, that's really hard because, because then, you know, just energetically, when you change the orbit, then that changes everything downstream too. 
unless you use a lot of energy and fuel to change it back. And so we try to avoid making changes like that. But if there's science justification, we'll do it. And it has happened. And Enceladus is a good case because um, when we first started getting clues from the first two pretty close flybys in early 2005, the magnetometer team told us, hey, we're seeing something interesting in Enceladus. And so here's what we need to do. On that next flyby, which was going to occur in July of 2005, we need to go a lot closer to so we went a lot closer and it paid off. Um, but yeah, we got a ton of information from Enceladus. It was the one of the things that um, people got really excited about. Yes. Well, I mean, this is, um, you know, one of the really neat things about the Cassini mission, I think, is the discovery of geologic activity on Enceladus. And I, you know, I think a lot of people would argue that that's the most important science discovery that Cassini made. And it was just an interesting story, I think, because, you know, Enceladus is such a small moon. It's only 500 kilometers across. Oh, my God. It's pretty <laughs> it's tiny. It's like three to four times Hawaii. That's not... Yeah, you take the island of Hawaii. It's like three islands of Hawaii in diameter. And Hawaii is small. <laughs> I mean, like when you think about in space next to Saturn... That's nothing. It's nothing. It's crazy that we can study this thing. It's icy. And, you know, it's 10 AU from the sun. So, you know, nobody really expected there to be activity on this thing because it's so small it should have cooled off on the interior long ago. Um, and yet there were clues that was something was going on because we, we for instance, Voyager images, um, you know, we didn't have many from uh, Voyager of Enceladus, but what we saw from Voyager showed us that there's at least large regions on the surface that have no craters. At the end of the day, on Earth, we have experience with, you know, yeah. the fact that how do we not have craters? Yeah. You know, like that's something that I think everyone takes for granted. But then, yeah, we don't have craters on Earth. We have like weird structures, but they're not craters. Mm -hmm. And that's something that like you don't think about ever. In that first uh, prime mission of Cassini with the four years of orbits around Saturn, we planned out three close flybys of Enceladus to investigate this interesting problem. And sure enough, um, we found out that it was active and you know discovered these crazy geysers coming out of the South Pole. They're technically not geysers, but they seem a lot like them. And um, you know it's really fabulous and um, an, an important discovery. But there are other reasons to consider planning. The sorts of things that we would turn off our experiment for and troubleshoot. There have been whoopsies, um, you know, on the mission from time to time. Nothing awful, nothing that isn't fixable. They were collecting some kind of important data and sending it back, but something happened at the receiver end and it just didn't get transmitted. And luckily, on, on occasion, they would be able to do another flyby or they had another one planned and they were able to receive the data then. But in order to prevent really critical pieces of information that they couldn't go back for, um, what they ended up doing was they just started sending it twice. And really simple solutions like that sometimes are good enough. So there's just a lot of testing to make sure that when we send commands to the spacecraft, it's, they're not going to uh, harm the spacecraft in any way. A really good thing about GPL in their operating plans is that they, they know how to do a lot of thorough testing. And an extra thing that maybe you can't prepare, but there's a lot of unexpected things. Um, I guess a third kind uh, would be what Morgan told us. 
What's really amazing has been these last few months, the so-called grand finale uh, for Cassini, because especially uh, when we're talking about studying the rings of Saturn, which is what I've worked on, we've seen so many things in the last few months that we only had hints of in the preceding 13 years. So things that people spent years and years working on, uh, but never could really quite see, uh, suddenly in these last few months, we've just been getting picture after picture, measurement after measurement uh, of exactly that thing. And if we could have somehow started with the end, I think we would have done a lot of things differently over the course of, of the mission. But that's how, that's how every mission works. That's how science uh, happens. Uh, but there's a lot of sitting around and being amazed, uh, instances of saying, wow, we were totally right about that. And wow, we were really off about that uh, all in these last few weeks and months. There's nothing truer than that, than the idea of after a project is over, you can think of a million ways to do it again so much faster and so much better, but you needed to go through the process to learn it to begin with. It's a very universal. In general to life, like it's always after the fact, you're like, oh, That's yeah. how that works. <laughs> Could have done this and saved nine months of my life. Ay, ay, ay. You have to say, like, you have to admire the fact that for 20 years, it's been working without having to be serviced, basically. You know, when, when scientists that work on Gansini talk about it, they, they sound almost surprised. So I, I had to ask Amanda. Well, <laughs> um, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm surprised. I am relieved um, that everything's gone well. Um, but I think that, you know, all the people involved in the fine details of planning did a very thorough job. Yeah, definitely very thorough job. And then it has to survive in order to be launched because space is, is not a friendly environment. Let's talk about the, this grand finale and then the way that the mission is going to end. Because it's crazy to me that you have to, you have to destroy your spacecraft after all this effort, all this time, all this planning. And because there are other options that they considered. Yeah. So, so as we understand, there, there are other options, but because of the discoveries of, of oceans and lakes in these moons and because there's just even this liver of possibility of them harboring life. They wanted to not have any possibilities of polluting those planets, I guess. And having biological contamination because the crafts, of course, were made here. Yeah, there is that. And there's like, you know, plutonium. Right. <laughs> so Cassini is powered by plutonium. Um, so for this grand finale, I think like what they end up choosing was how they could gain the most amount of information about the one object they hadn't been able to study in depth during the mission, which was the rings. Because all this time, they were very afraid that if we went too close to the rings, a particle could damage the spacecraft. It's a very real concern. Going that fast, anything that hits it will break it. So in, if it were orbiting indefinitely around Saturn, there's always the possibility that the orbit, something happens and it crashes into one of these moons. And you don't know, know what's go. where exactly the particles are going to end up. So Saturn was the safest bet. Yeah, so it, it really feels sad um, to have the mission be ending and to have the spacecraft need to be destroyed, really. Um, I understand why it is, but it, it is, I do feel sentimental about it because, I mean, after having worked on it, this mission for 20 years, because I came on board in about 1997, um, just after launch. I've 
become very attached to it, of course. It almost feels like it's a part of the family, you know, like what's Katini doing today and what's the latest discovery. And um, and so to not have it be there anymore is um, it's a, you know, I need to have a paradigm shift in my brain and get my brain around that. But the, but the really good thing is that, you know, as I mentioned before, there's so much data that even though the spacecraft isn't there anymore, you know, really the legacy of Cassini will live on forever because there's so much data to analyze and to learn about the system from for, for, for decades and for generations. So, you know, thinking about it like that makes me feel a little better. To end the show, we're very curious because this crashing into, this crashing into Saturn you know, we've never sent anything into Saturn. So maybe we can learn something about it during the crashing. Yeah, I'm not, I don't, I don't know. I mean, we're, we, we can't do too much to um, really control the pointing because we have to keep the antenna pointed at Earth. So, um, and really it's going to be some tens of seconds, you know, after we kind of get, um, hit the top of the atmosphere until we lose signal. I'm not holding the actual data that we're taking during that final plunge. Mostly I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, exactly how long the signal lasts and how long um, spacecraft kind of remains intact before we lose signal. But this is not the end of space exploration. Well, of course not. But <laughs> NASA is over. No more spacecrafts. They're all being returned. Um, no, but yeah, so they, of course, after having seen all this data come out, they have high hopes of returning to Saturn and to going to other places. And to visit all these moons that have seas and oceans. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, Morgan had a little message. To make a mission like Cassini possible, something that has spanned three decades, it takes a tremendous amount of continuity. And not just continuity uh, and perseverance among the people who are putting it together, the scientists and the engineers, uh, but also from our, uh, our leaders. If we hope to have another Cassini in the future, maybe going to uh, Uranus or going to Neptune, or maybe we go back uh, to Pluto, we need leaders who are willing to commit to something for the long term, who are willing to say that yes, in 10 years or in 20 years, uh, this is still something that we'll be supporting. And every time we change directions in our priorities when exploring space, we set ourselves back a tremendous distance because then you have to start this 20 or 30 year clock over again. And so I think if you're excited about space and you love the exploration of the outer solar system that Cassini has brought, uh, encourage your elected leaders to support a robust and continuous NASA program uh, that can make that possible again in the future. There just needs to be continuity. Yeah, so this is interesting. So I think space, I think this is true for almost all real projects that will make a real difference. But in particular for space, even, even if you keep the same budget, but you change directions every five years, you'll get nowhere. Yeah, but we see that in other parts of like policy building that those are concerns, you know? I mean, that's, that's a totally different topic, but I'm just actually... Yeah, and then we'll discuss that in another later episode. And that was our first episode. 
Latino Labs is a podcast on science, technology, and policy. Don't forget to check us out at patreon.com slash latinolabs and on Facebook and Twitter. We really appreciate your feedback, both constructive and destructive, that can make this podcast better. Latino Labs is produced by me, Jorge Nicolás Hernández Charpac, with the help of Andrea Martón that you could hear in this episode and of Alina Margarita Mateo that you can hear in our episode in Spanish. I want to thank Dr. Amanda Hendricks and Morgan Redberg for the interviews, as well as to Dr. Begoña Abad and Javier Orjuela for their help with the translations to Spanish. I also would like to thank Space Boys. Their music is pretty cool. You should check it out. And I would like to recognize Strobe and Chila as research centers that understand that science communication can also be done by scientists.